Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you live in the desolate countryside, you tend to come across a lot of strange and unexplainable things. The strangest thing I've seen is an entity I've come to refer to as the Gardener. Don't let his innocent nickname fool you. He is by far the most terrifying individual to inhabit the valley I call home. I think it's partially because of his brazen behavior. While some creatures lurk in the woods beyond the fields and scamper away at the first sign of human light, the Gardener roams in full view, carrying his rusty tin watering can everywhere he goes. He's so brazen, in fact, that I originally thought he was a senile neighbor. That is until the night I saw him close up. That's when I realized he wasn't human. He was something more. Or perhaps something less. This year, the region was experiencing a prolonged period of drought the third in recent memory. My land, once full of rich soil, was crumbling at my feet, dry and cracked like the surface of a shortbread cookie. You would think nothing could survive the desert-like conditions, yet weeds spread like wildfire over what had once been a luscious field of strawberries. They formed a mismatched blanket of gnarled vegetation that extended from my house to the neighbor's farm several miles away. He'd given up the upkeep months ago and allowed his land to be swallowed away while I stubbornly spent my days pulling out the weeds and mowing my field to no avail. Every morning, I'd wake up to an ocean of undesirable plant life replacing what I'd gotten rid of the day before. A few nights ago, I spotted someone in my field. My eyes attempted to pierce through the darkness so I could make out the form more clearly, but all I could see was the outline of a man slowly making his way up and down my rows of barren land. From his short gait and hunched stance, he gave the impression of being an elderly man. My first thought was that he was a disoriented neighbor in need of help, so I hurried out with a flashlight to offer my assistance. However, by the time I made it out the door... He was gone. Try as I might, I could not find a single trace of him. He left no footprints to prove his existence, nor did he produce any sound nearby that could point me in the right direction. I wondered then, as I stood alone with nothing but the howling wind to keep me company, if he'd just been a figment of my imagination. Isolation could play tricks on the mind. It was probably just an animal, I theorized. As I headed back home, I felt my feet sinking into the ground. I knelt down and touched the soil with the back of my hand. It was moist, as though freshly watered. It had not been my imagination. It was my first encounter with the gardener. The next morning, I woke to find half my field coated in thick and twisted vines. They stretched from the woods all the way to where I'd last seen the gardener the night before. Coincidence, I thought. The weeds stopped abruptly. The transition between them and empty land was so unnaturally well-defined that it resembled the sharp walls of a corn maze. I was in for another day of hard labor, else I risked my home being overrun by the tangled mess. I decided to go into town to buy herbicide and fuel for my lawnmower. It had been a while since my last visit, and I needed the human interaction. There was talk of an exodus in town that day. The region couldn't survive another poor harvest, and apparently many families had abandoned their homes overnight. Those houses were soon swallowed by the same weeds I'd been battling all summer. 
As I did the rounds and made my purchases, I couldn't help but wonder if it was time for me to move on as well. I liked my home. I loved living in the countryside, but the valley was dying. Maybe my troubles were a sign that it was time to leave. Once I'd finished my errands, I drove back home where I spent the rest of the day spraying, mowing, and pulling the weeds from my field. The gardener appeared again that night as I sat on the porch rewarding myself with a beer. He didn't even seem to mind my presence as he walked about slowly, stopping every few meters to dip a watering can. He did so seemingly at random, pouring a substantial amount of liquid into my wasteland of a field. I watched, stunned, as he continued row after row, emptying the canister onto the cracked soil. I didn't think there was anything else at play here than a crazy old coot with a pathological need to water invisible plants. Perhaps he had Alzheimer's and mistook my field for his garden. I could have run up to him and asked him to stop, but honestly, I didn't see the point in bothering the old soul. Without so much as a wave of acknowledgement, I left him to his own devices and headed inside. For hours... I laid in bed unable to find sleep, partially due to the dry heat and partially due to a building sense of anxiety in the pit of my stomach. There was one thing that nagged at me. Though I'd watched the man water the ground for a good 10 to 20 minutes, never once did I see him refill his canister. Just how much water could it hold? I'm not sure what compelled me to do it, but I crawled out of bed and drew open the blinds from my bedroom window. The old man was still going at it, his back turned to me, no more than ten meters from my house. I could see him quite clearly this time. Gray and white hair stuck out from under a straw hat, skinny arms and bony hands clutched his rusty watering can, a flannel plaid shirt was tucked into a pair of overalls, and rubber boots, not unlike those of a cranberry farmer, reached midway up his legs. The scene went from slightly odd to downright strange when I noticed a twig sprouting from the spot he'd just watered. Before my very eyes, more and more weeds emerged from my field like baby chicks hatching from their eggs. They blanketed my property in a matter of seconds. In utter disbelief, I closed the curtains and backed away. Impossible, I thought. It had to be a trick. Maybe I'd had too much to drink? Perhaps the second beer combined with the exhaustion and dehydration of a hard day's work had conspired against me to create this unearthly illusion. Even though I'd seen the result of the weed's unnatural growth throughout the week, it was hard to resign myself to the truth. My mind, plagued with denial, I crept back into bed. The only way I'd get any sleep was by casting aside my thoughts of the strange old man and his plants that grew as quickly as magic beanstalks. Even still, it took several hours for sleep to finally find me. Not even the welcoming rays of sun could wake me the next morning. By the time I opened my eyes, it was almost noon. My back ached from the previous day's activities of lugging around the large herbicide container and bending over to pull weeds. It had taken a toll on my body, but it was nothing I wasn't used to. Having grown up on a farm, I'd become accustomed to hard labor and the soreness that came with it. Down the creaky wooden stairs I went, and then turned the corner to my kitchen. That's when I saw what had become of my lovely field. And the sight caused me to gasp loudly. There were weeds from corner to corner. They stretched up a good six feet, then buckled and craned downwards. I'd woken up to a carpet of weeds before, but never this high or this dense. It shocked me to the point of immobility. I must have stood there, studying the sight in shock for a good ten minutes before finally I managed to move a muscle. What can I do but cut them down again? They were too tall for my lawnmower, 
so I equipped myself with a sickle and more herbicide, tackling the vines blindly. Not only did they stretch from the forest all the way across my field, but they also crawled along the exterior walls of my house. Within hours, I had filled five garbage bags full of vines, but I only managed to clear a fraction of my land. I was beyond drained by nightfall, having spent the entire day trying to free my property from the clutches of unwanted vegetation. The sun had set by the time I returned home for a meal. A combination of the scent of herbicide and sweat were imbued in my clothes, but I ignored it in favor of filling my growling stomach. Echoing in the back of my head, I could still hear the sound of my sickle ripping through the thick weeds and could feel my arms tugging at the roots. I'd barely managed it, but I'd cleared the majority of the undesirable plant life. A warm shower and a good meal later, I took a seat on the old rocking chair by the window. As I did, I had the vague impression the weeds were already reclaiming my lot. That was unacceptable. I was going to have to wage war on them and couldn't allow them to get a foothold once more. This was ending tonight. I'd stayed up till the blink of dawn if it meant eradicating every single twig, vine, and bush that didn't belong on my property. I grabbed a flashlight and a sickle before exiting my house. Sheer stubborn determination was the only thing keeping my tired body from toppling over. I did my best to clear the bushes, plaguing my land, but it seemed as though every time I finished one spot and moved to the next, the roots grew back. That wasn't bad enough. The gardener arrived for his nightly rounds. I saw him gliding through the tangled mess with ease. The vegetation seemed to clear a path for him, only to close as soon as he'd made it through. I'd never been one to scare easy, especially not when faced with something as harmless as an elderly man, but something in my guts told me to run and hide. A deep, primal part of me begged me to escape. Where could I go, but in the very forest of weeds that I was trying to clear? I rolled under the thorny mess and ducked low to the ground to spy on the gardener. From my lower vantage point in close proximity, I could see the bottomless watering can the gardener carried. It looked surprisingly normal. It was a pastel green, though half its paint had been chipped off, exposing a rusted undercoating. On its sides were faded prints of what I can only assume were roses. The spout was uneven and caked with calcium, yet that didn't seem to deter the flow of water in the least. Holding the watering can were fingers almost as thin and sharp as twigs. One would have expected them to be shaky, and yet they held firmly without so much as a hint of weakness. In the shadows, I crawled closer to the old man while he continued his work. I decided it was time to confront him, ignoring the warning bells resonating in my mind. What was I so afraid of? I was bigger, tougher, faster. He was just an old man. Taking my courage in hand, I revealed myself and stood directly in front of the stranger. I understood, as I stood face to face with the gardener, he was not human. Under the man's handmade straw hat was a face so horrible, it caused me to tremble. I'm not sure what I noticed first, the eyes or the mouth. His lips were sewn together like that of a scarecrow. Raggedy twine kept him perpetually angled downward, while his jaw and cheeks moved in what I could only assume was an attempt at speaking, but no sound left his restrained maw. His eyes, or rather his eye sockets, were empty. The red, moist walls contracted steadily with every beat of his heart. His lower eyelids were folded out and drooped down to his sharp cheekbones, exposing veins and pink flesh. The sight made me stumble back and scream. 
Perhaps I startled the gardener, or perhaps he intended to do so all along, but as soon as he heard me yell, he lunged forward and swung the watering can towards my face. Instinctively, I threw my arms up to protect myself and felt lukewarm liquid sprinkle onto my left arm. It was water. Just water. If nothing else, it was nice and refreshing. It was like walking through a sprinkler in the middle of a blistering hot summer day. My arms fell back in place, and only then did I realize the gardener was gone, leaving behind not a trace except for the soil he'd watered. I tested my luck enough for one night, I thought. The day's events had finally caught up to me, and an overwhelming need to sleep forced me to stumble toward the house in a tired haze. The only light I could see for miles was the one on my porch, guiding me back like a landing strip in an airport. I can't even remember making it to the bed, but somehow I managed. Pain. Searing, burning pain in my arm pulled me out from my slumber. I woke up in absolute agony. It was nothing like the muscle soreness I was used to. The sensation was as though someone had run a rake over my bones and shot pine needles through each of my pores. I threw my blanket off and looked at my now trembling left arm, and the skin on it was drier than a desert, resembling the cracked and arid land outside. There was a strange green welt on my forearm, like a tiny volcano beginning to erupt. The veins in my arm had turned forest green. What exactly had I been exposed to? Was it an allergic reaction to the weeds I'd been rolling around in, or was the gardener somehow to blame? Instinct took over, and I stumbled to the washroom, throwing open every drawer and cupboard until I found a pair of tweezers. I wanted relief from the pressure being built inside the welt. I was barely able to hold the tweezers due to the pain, but I forced my fingers to hang on long enough to reach the pastel. I squeezed, and it gushed open. Instant relief. I sat on the edge of my bathtub, eyes closed, as green liquid oozed out of the bizarre welt. For a few blissful moments, the pain in my arm stopped, but then... I felt something deep under the skin. I opened my eyes just in time to see a tiny weed sprout out from the now-open sore. It unfurled and grew about an inch in height. The plant's roots did what came natural to them. They headed toward the nearest source of hydration, the closest thing this sapling had to a water source. The blood flowing through my veins. I felt a sharp prickle as its roots pierced into my blood system and traveled through me. The sensation was violating, and I could feel each grainy branch stretching my veins to their limit. Something needed to be done, and fast. There were only two things I could think of to get rid of the weed. My lawnmower and my herbicide. Obviously, I wasn't about to run my arm under the blades of my lawnmower. Holding my arm tightly, I dashed to the garage where I found the nearly empty jug of herbicide. In my desperation, I poured it over the exposed skin. I'm not sure what hurt more. The plant spreading through my system or the poison. The chemicals boiled at the surface of the wound, causing the sapling to shrivel up and die, but also burned my skin in the process. My pain receptors were overloading from the relentless agony I was putting myself through. I groaned guttural, animalistic noises, barely able to breathe. I knew what had to be done next. I'd killed the weed, but it was still inside me. It still needed to be removed. It took me a few minutes to convince myself to do it. Herbicide and green blood drizzled down my arm as I grabbed an old rag from the shelf. I rolled it and wedged it between my teeth, filling my mouth with the unpleasant taste of dirt and grime. The feel of the fabric scratching against my teeth brought goosebumps to my skin, but the discomfort was mild compared to what I was about to endure. 
with a deep inhale. I wrapped my fingers around the sapling, closed my eyes tightly, and pulled. If not for the gag, my screams would have likely echoed all the way to town. The sensation was nauseating. I could feel every twisted knot and tendril scraping the walls of my veins. The pain radiated from my forearm, reaching the tips of my fingers and all the way to my clavicle. Tears streamed down my sweat-stained face as I continued to pull until I'd gotten every last inch of the roots out of me. Finally, I dropped the plants onto the ground and examined what had just been inside my body. It was longer than I could have ever imagined and spread into smaller branches, most of which had bulbs at the end. Had I not dealt with it swiftly, I have no doubt those bulbs would have ruptured my skin and spread, overtaking me quickly. And then... Everything went black. When I came to, I found myself curled up in a ball on the cold cement floor. My left arm could barely move. I pushed myself to my feet, dizzily heading to the bathroom so I could wash the mess. As I looked in the mirror, however, I realized the green veins had spread from my arm to the rest of my body. And now my face was covered in pustules. I'd lost. It's night now, and the gardener is out there again. He's wandering my field, watering the cracked and dried up soil. I expect my house to become buried in a sea of weeds by morning. There's nothing I can do about it. The pustules are growing larger by the hour, the saplings inside getting ready to burst out. My only hope now is to drink what's left of the herbicide. I wonder what will die first. Me? Or the weeds? At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. We're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. miss you. I held off on getting a cell phone for as long as possible. I didn't really have a good reason, I guess, other than the cost. When I was just sitting out on my own, there was no way I could afford a monthly plan. I was the only one of my friends to still rely on a landline, and it drove everyone nuts. I managed to wait until my 25th birthday, when I finally felt financially secure enough to justify buying one for myself. My friends all laughed about my change of heart, but I could tell they were relieved. To be honest, I was pretty pleased, too. As it turns out, cell phones are ridiculously convenient. Who knew? I didn't start getting the texts until about a month after I bought my phone. It was the first message from an unknown number that I'd received, and it read simply, I miss you. I was confused at first. What kind of introductory text was that? It seemed a little overdramatic to me, and that was when I made the connection. About a year before, I dumped a deadbeat ex-boyfriend out of my life. Looking back, I can definitely say that he was really something of an overgrown child. He expected me to cook, clean, set up his doctor's appointments, and give him, yes, give him half of my income each month and he did not find it necessary to get a job. I shouldn't have stayed with him so long. Damn those devilish good looks. But once I came to my senses, I kicked him to the curb, as all his other girlfriends or victims had done before. My guess was that he'd stalked my Facebook, or 
prodded my friends for my new number. After all, this wasn't the first time he'd tried to reach out to me, and I figured it wouldn't be the last. In the end, I chose not to answer. For one, I knew he would just try to manipulate me if he had the chance, as per usual. For two, it would give me petty satisfaction to let him feel ignored and unheard. Now, as a rule, I try not to be petty, but sometimes such a perfect opportunity is just too seductive. The next few months seemed to corroborate my inference. His attacks weren't constant, but they were always vague pleas that seemed to indicate that he needed a new host to leech off of and couldn't find one. It was unsurprising that he tried to reach out to me first, as I'd been the most loyal and long-lasting of all of his girlfriends, and the most naive. I was the perfect target. The messages were always in the same vein and quickly became tiresome. I miss you. I wish I could see you. I thought I saw you in a crowd today, but it turned out just to be a dream. It was pathetic. One night about eight months since I'd had my phone, I slipped up. I have to admit, I'd been drinking. I had started as one beer to help me unwind after work and quickly snowballed into a one-woman party. I was thoroughly smashed when I received a much longer text than usual. I miss you so much. I know you don't read these, but today of all days, I need you to know how much I love you. I'd do anything to see you one more time. Today of all days? I wondered. I tried to wade through the mushy haze of my brain. The first thought I had, I seized. Today must have been our anniversary. Sure, why not? It would be the perfect opportunity for a little manipulation. He was a prick, but he was smart. And then I had an idea. He wants to play games? (laughs) Okay, let's play. But I'm going to change the rules. I swear my thoughts slurred. I began to type and my autocorrect struggled to clarify through my drunkness. If you want to come and see me, then why don't you do it? And then, just for good measure, to let him know I knew he'd been investigating me. You know where to find me. I sent it. And with that, I changed fate. When I woke up the next morning, I had 13 missed calls. I tried to remember through the throbbing in my skull just what bullshit I'd done the night before. I groaned when my texting history answered my question. Well, at least I hadn't answered the phone, I thought. I silently prayed that he wouldn't message or call again, but that I'd merely succeed in egging him on. To my great relief, he stopped messaging. For a week or so, my phone was blissfully free from his assaults. I was secretly satisfied, congratulating my drunken self on her ingenuity. The next week, I received a knock on my door. I opened it only to reveal a man of the badge, his solemn face and blue uniform standing stark in the morning sunlight. His partner stood behind him, his face hard as stone. I felt a coldness seeping into my veins as they stared at me. Uh, good morning, officers. Is something wrong? I asked. With very little introduction, they invited themselves inside. I let them in, not sure what they were looking for, but positive they wouldn't find it. I figured they'd made a mistake, and was even more surprised when they began firing questions. Do you know anyone by the name of Silence Madison? I was stumped, completely puzzled. I can't say that I do. Why? We found a series of texts to you on her phone. We found only one reply from you. The younger officer pulled a printout of texts that I had been receiving, along with my one drunken reply. 
Reality started to dawn on me as the older officer said, Did you receive these messages? Yeah, I answered. I added quickly, but they were coming from an unknown number. I thought they were my ex-boyfriend. And that's why you sent that reply. I was sweating nervously. Well, yeah. I thought it would make him stop. I couldn't stop running my mouth. I was a little drunk, so maybe it wasn't the best decision. The younger officer stepped outside as the older one sighed. There seems to have been a rather unfortunate accident. What do you mean? He took a deep breath and opened his mouth. Silence had a very rough first year of college. Classes were hard, she didn't quite fit in, her life was a mess of stress and papers, and just when she thought it couldn't get any worse, her best friend since childhood... Raquel Wagner died in a car wreck. The death was instant, but Silence's pain was not. She'd withdrawn into herself as the semester went on. Her family and friends mourned Raquel's loss, of course, but they continued their lives as people are wont to do. Silence, on the other hand could not bring herself to leave her friend in the past. She tried to deal with it. She really did. She looked for outlets. She tried to put on a happy face when she went to class, but she sank slowly into a darkness that felt inescapable. And when that darkness was truly thick, suffocating, insufferable, She'd text Raquel's old number. A useless gesture, but sometimes it would bring her comfort. And on the anniversary of Raquel's death, when she was at her lowest, she finally got a response. If you want to come see me, then why don't you do it? You know where to find me. She tried calling but didn't even reach voicemail because I never set it up. So she'd done the only logical thing that she could do. She reached for the box cutter she'd swiped from work and opened her veins to the possibility of infinity. I made a terrible mistake that night, a mistake that ended the life of someone desperately struggling just above the surface. Her father forgave me, but no matter how many times I apologized, her mother had nothing but hatred for me. I understood that. To her, I had been the final push to kill her daughter. The police told me over and over that Silence herself had ended her own life. I was not to blame, but inside me, seeds of guilt spread far across my heart, growing like weeds that I just couldn't uproot. It was a long, hard year. I'd managed to get back on my feet to continue on with my life, although Silence's death hung over me like a shadow. No matter what I did, I just couldn't forget her. No matter how far away the incident seemed, yesterday was her anniversary. I tried my best to get through the day, pretending I'd never heard that name, never heard that story. It was going well until about ten that night when I received a text. A text from a number I'd been trying desperately to forget for the entirety of last year. Thank you. With supply chains becoming more complex you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights.
It knows what you hate, and it hates what you love. I originally heard about Sack of Knives in one of my medieval literature texts. The class had sounded interesting out of my options that quarter, but two weeks in, I was already wishing I'd taken another round of poetry or creative writing. Part of it was the professor, who was chronically dry and boring as he gave a canned lecture he'd obviously regurgitated for the last 20 years. But most of it was the language itself. It was so archaic and hard to read, and I already knew I sucked at foreign language. Some of the books were modernized, but most were just littered with footnotes and tiny block paragraphs longer than the text they were explaining. Of course, when I finally saw something that sounded cool, there were no notes to be found. I was in the middle of a story fragment about a village that fell under a curse of some kind. People were going crazy, maybe? Were their cows raw dying? Fuck if I know. The accompanying woodcut made it look bad, though. Still, it was kind of boring and dumb, and I was about to give up when a phrase caught my eye. If I wasn't wrong, it read as sack of knives. Like I said, there was no footnote, and when I went to the index, the term wasn't listed. I looked on the internet, but there was nothing about it there either. My interest was already waning, but then an idea occurred to me. The professor of the class was always telling people to ask if we had any questions, be it after class or during his student office hours. No way I was doing that, but maybe if I fired off a quick email asking about it, he would think I gave a shit about a stupid class. I wasn't a suck-up, but I didn't mind a little padding in case I tanked an essay at some point. So I looked up his facility email and asked him what the term meant before putting away my books and heading out to Jeff's party. I literally didn't think about it again that night. The party itself kind of sucked. It was one of those deals where there were too many people for it to be fun, so my little social circle ended up just hanging out together even though it was in my friend Jeff and Madison's house. They were both grad students, and Jeff was in a pissy mood about his thesis getting shot down. This led me to the others of our group taking turns bitching about people that were being assholes. Bosses that were unfair, boyfriends and girlfriends that were unfaithful or controlling, parents and siblings that didn't understand our individual and collective plights. We were all drunk and only half serious as we took turns trying to melodramatically one-up each other's woes, and by the end of the night, we were all so exhausted from laughing so much that I wound up falling asleep on their floor. When I got back to my dorm the next morning, I saw I had an email. Greetings, Mr. Holden. So glad to see you taking an interest in the peculiarities of our medieval friends from the distant past. The phrase you referenced is actually quite interesting. It refers to an obscure pranking custom that was common in parts of Europe for a time. It went as follows. A group of friends, or like-minded ne'er-do-wells, would gather together and put names, or, given the extremely low rates of literacy, other identifying marks or objects in a sack or satchel. Either way, the idea was that you were identifying a target for the prank usually an enemy. Once everyone had put a person in the sack, you all drew one back out. Your own excluded, of course. I say, of course, because the purpose of the sack of knives was to harass or even hurt someone you hated without it being tied to you personally. These were typically small communities where everyone knew each other, and the risk of being seen and recognized while journeying to or from breaking someone's fence or poisoning their feed was significantly higher than it wouldn't be today. If someone saw an enemy lurking around their property and suddenly their cow got out or their chickens died, well, it would be immediately suspicious. The sack of knives provided a measure of protection from such scrutiny, and generally it was limited to small pranks that wouldn't raise too much ire, though there were always exceptions. Once the prankster finished some act against their target, they would go back to the sack, usually hidden in a place everyone in the game knew, and put a stick inside with the name or identifier tied to it. 
This symbolized the knife they used to kill their friend's enemy. The game wasn't over until all the sticks and artifacts were in the sack. I believe there were variations of the rules over the years, but generally no winner was ever specified. I suppose their indirect revenge against those they hated was reward enough. I thought about responding, but decided against it. It was cool of him to respond so quick, but there was a difference between getting some brownie points and becoming pen pals with a lit super nerd. Laughing at the idea, I closed my laptop and got ready for work. It was a week later when I mentioned the sack of knives to Jeff and Madison over dinner. I brought it up as a funny story, but the more I described the email, the more interested they became. For I knew it, they'd called up Paul and Allison, two of our other friends who, based on the earlier party conversation, had clear axes to grind with someone. They brought along their friend Marty, who'd just been fired from an internship for smoking weed in the parking lot. I tried to put the brakes on before people came over and we got some weird party game, but Madison wasn't hearing it. She said it was the best idea she'd heard in fucking months, that it sounded cool, fun, and very satisfying. But the key, she noted, was having enough participation. Winking at me, she turned and smirked at Jeff. It's like that Hitchcock movie, right? Crisscross, motherfucker. Three days later, I was carving the words fucking whore into the hood of a stranger's car. We'd used a knockoff purse and index cards, but I suppose it worked well enough. I'd pulled Allison's former best friend, who had apparently slept with Allison's high school boyfriend. I wanted to ask if Paul, Allison's current boyfriend, was okay with her still being so hung up on that past relationship, but I felt like it wouldn't go over well. So... I left it alone. Instead, I dutifully folded my note and tucked it into my pocket, planning on waiting till later to worry if I was going to go through with the prank or not. But letting go of the thought wasn't so easy. From the time I got the name and the address, I was preoccupied with doing something to that woman. It's not like I'm a mean-spirited guy or anything, but it was just... Dumb as it sounds, it felt like I'd made a promise I had to keep. I went back to Jeff's house after I was done and found the purse hanging in the tool shed. Below it, there were three butter knives with rubber bands around them. Cute. I guess the other three had already filled the sack. When I put in my own, I saw I was right. I wondered who'd gotten my own special request and what they'd done. I found out soon enough. Jeff. Jeff's dead. I squeezed the phone tighter as the ground seemed to sway under me. What? What do you mean? Madison's voice was high and brittle when she spoke again. I mean, he's fucking dead. He had your guy. Calvin Egger was your guy, right? I slumped down onto the couch, barely able to breathe. Yeah, yeah, he he was my guy, just this junky asshole I roomed with as a freshman. He bailed first quarter, stole my laptop. I could never prove it, but I knew it was him. He's a townie, so I see that fucker around sometimes. I blinked, coming back to the conversation. But, but how, how, is, how is Jeff dead? He apparently tried to run that guy off the road. Well, he did run him off the road. Calvin guy got fucked up. They say they're life-flighting him somewhere. But Jeff went off the road, too. He hit a tree. The last world trailed off in a low moan. I didn't know what to say. Jeff would never do anything like that. There wasn't a mean or crazy bone in his body. It didn't make any... The phone clicked and went dead. I tried calling her back, but there was no answer. Turns out there was a good reason for that. She had shot herself in the head.
in the past five days, two of the other people have turned up dead as well. One by suicide, and the other was shot while he was trying to burn down a hardware store. As for Paul, well, the police are still looking for him in connection with an aggravated assault where he allegedly broke an old man's legs with a metal softball bat. And me? I'm currently a person of interest in a rape case. Not because I have any connection to the victim whatsoever, or because the woman has been able to give a clear description of anyone, but because my car was seen in the neighborhood the night that it happened, and the man matching my description was seen by a couple walking their dog. The man was apparently carving the words fucking bitch into the victim's car. I'm not superstitious, but I'm not stupid either. This wasn't all a coincidence. And the thing that connected it all was that stupid fucking game. A game I'd learned about from my professor. So I emailed him repeatedly, but I got no response. After two days of waiting, I called his office and left a voicemail. To my surprise, I got a call back that afternoon. Mr. Browning. Uh, yeah. Is this Professor Miller? It is, yes. I got your voicemail. You sounded very upset, but I couldn't follow what you were talking about. You mentioned something in the reading? I sucked in a breath and tried to keep my voice calm. Yeah. Like I, like I told you before. It was in the coursework last month. The story about the cursed village, the thing that talked about the sack of knives game. There was a long pause and I could hear the flutter of pages as he spoke again. I, I'm not sure what you're talking about. I know the story you're referencing, but just a moment. <laughs> ah, yes. I think I found the line. So of knaves, right? If you say so. You called it Sack of Knives in the email, just like I did, but you have to know more than email. I frowned. Was he fucking drunk or something? I didn't have time for this. If he wouldn't give me straight answers, he could talk to the fucking cops about it. Yes, the email you sent me when I asked about it. Another pause. Mr. Browning, I haven't sent you an email. I don't use email at all, if I'm honest. Bit of Luddite, I know, but the old dogs and all that. The department secretary will print out critical missives for my account, but I haven't read anything from you or any other students in, well, probably better than a year. The man went on hesitantly. This is part of what I wanted to address. You seemed in both the voicemail and this conversation to be under the impression that we've talked before, but I can assure you we haven't. Not outside of the times I might have called on you in class. As for this phrase, well, it is interesting, but given your apparent upset, it's certainly not a topic you should be focused on at the moment. Perhaps you should talk to someone if you're feeling very anxious or confused. I stood up and began pacing. That's... Uh, that's bullshit. I have the email. I have proof. Son, I don't doubt you do, but I can tell you it wasn't from me. Maybe you got me mixed up with someone else, or maybe my account got... tricked? Hacked? I don't know. I wanted to scream at him, but I wasn't sure he was lying. Wasn't it possible someone had gone to his account or duped his address somehow? But why? And what did it have to do with that stupid sack of knives game? I really should be going. No, please, Professor, just... I'll stay calm. Just tell me what you know about the sack of knives game. I could hear him puff out a long breath on the other end. Very well. But, if you get upset again, 
I'm going to let you go. Okay, deal. Okay. As I said, it's not Sack of Knives. It's Sacks of Knaves. Sacks was an old English name for a kind of knife, which makes your mistake rather humorous, I suppose. They were single-edged, fixed-blade tools that were sometimes used as weapons in a pinch, particularly amongst the Saxons, whose name comes from that very same word. As for knave, that's an old word for a trickster, or a scoundrel. Sometimes a thief, or something worse. Worse? Like what? What does it mean in the book? In that village? I... I don't know that I feel comfortable delving into old superstitions with a man that is so clearly distressed. I stopped pacing. Please, sir. I need to know this. And then I'll let you go. He began again with a shaky breath. Sacks of Knaves wasn't a game. It was a ritual. In the region it originated in, the knave was a slang term for a demon or a devil, an evil spirit. In the ritual, you became a knife of demons. Essentially, you were doing wrong against one who had not wronged you, spreading discord, suffering. Part of the practical effect is clear. It was a slightly clever way of trying to get revenge on others indirectly, but the more profound consequences was supposedly that you were binding yourself to this other. And whether you knew it or not, you were part of the offering to be made. The man cleared his throat. There are stories of this throughout history, of course. Places where people become strange, turn on each other. Whole villages and towns have been lost to it, even in modern times. Today we call it mental illness, mass hysteria. And, well, I'm sure that's the right of it. He laughed uncomfortably. Now, if I may ask, um, why are you so fascinated by this? You haven't tried it yourself, have you? My vision began to swim as I nodded to an empty room. We... We did. We... We thought it was a joke, and now my friends are dead, and... He muttered something and then said more clearly, Do not contact me again. I heard a beep as he hung up. Staring down at my phone, I replayed in my head what he'd muttered before hanging up, trying to make sense of it. It knows what you hate. And it hates what you love. <laughs> 